Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is Ted Danson. We don't need to spend a ton of time explaining who that is because, I mean, because he's Ted Danson. Cheers, The Good Place, Damages, Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's one of the most successful TV actors ever. Ted's newest show is Mr. Mayor. It's a comedy from the minds of Tina Fey and Robert Carlock, the creators of 30 Rock and Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Ted plays the title role, Mayor Neil Bremer. Neil is a former billboard tycoon who's just been elected mayor of Los Angeles. He's cheerful, goofy, and he's not great at this kind of thing. He also has a teenage daughter named Orly, who has problems of her own. As in this scene, where Orly is running for class president at her school on a platform to ban plastic straws, only her dad just announced the same initiative at City Hall. How could you do this? The straw ban is my thing. Because, because I care about things that you care. Remember, I cared about Pokemon when you loved Pokemon. Dad, how could you do this to me? I mean, everyone thinks I copied your straw ban idea. You have to take yours back. I can't do that. Do you that. know what Vita I said? Don't even, who's Vita? She said that the straw ban was exactly the kind of frivolous thing she would expect from a rich white man's daughter. Oh. She called us rich. No, I'm rich. You're my plus one. Look, you tell Vita that I was born in a walk-up in Crown Heights. Ugh. I slept in one bed with both my grandfathers, and one of them had something called erotic dementia. I hate that story, and I hate that you're mayor, and I hate that we had to move into this gross old mayor house. You Ugh. think I like this house? I-, I can't figure out the AC. All my cigars are going bad. Ted Danson, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. Me too. This is fun. You said something that I thought was really great in an interview about Mr. Mayor, which was that uh, Holly Hunter, who's one of America's greatest actors, but has never been on a sitcom before, asked you whether she should pause for punchlines. And you said that she shouldn't and that you should just feel the wind in your hair. (laughs) (laughs) oh i hope i did say that that's kind of cool i mean it is a very different kind of show maybe this you know mr mayor maybe isn't quite as breakneck as 30 rock or kimmy schmidt but tina fey and robert carlock and their associates put a lot of jokes into one script yeah yeah they do um it's not that they're writing something slower it's that they hired me to do their fast jokes which is kind of like you know comes out medium speed (laughs) i mean i I feel like one of your uh one of your signature comedic moves at this point uh in your career is gazing uh you do a lot of interesting (laughs) gazing (laughs) (laughs) i also love this (laughs) Gazing. I love that. And if I'm not, I'm going to start because that's great. (laughs) Um, You grew up in the in the Southwest. What what did your folks do for a living? My father was an archaeologist, anthropologist, professor at Tucson University of Arizona in Tucson. And then in the 
I don't know, 58, 1958, he moved up, we moved up to Flagstaff, Arizona, and he became the director of the museum and the research center, which was a very small, but kind of world known museum and research center. And my mother was a homemaker and um, she was extraordinary. Um, But actually, you know, being the wife of the director of a museum means that she basically entertained you know, five nights out of the week, we were eating dinner with three or four or five other people around the table that, that we didn't know, visiting scientists. What was Flagstaff like in 1960? It was a, you know, it started out, I think, being mostly a cattle and timber town. It definitely still had the very small town, 29,000 people maybe. And we lived, though, about three and a half, four miles out of town. So I was never a townie. Um, I was always kind of isolated in this great way out, outside of town. And my, my friends were Hopi and Navajo kids. Um, some of their parents worked at the museum. And uh, I had a couple of buddies, friends, um, who were sons and daughters of ranchers who lived 50 miles outside of town. So it was a very little tight scientific community with my, you know, but basically I ran out the door and played with my Hopi friend, Raymond, and went out to the villages, uh, the Hopi Mesa, Mesas. And um, it was it was an extraordinary life. Did you aspire to show business? No. I I aspired to the moment, which was mostly about playing with my friends, great make-believers. You know, we played, we'd go see Darby's Rangers at the local Orpheum Theater, and then we'd be, uh, we would be Rangers, Darby's Rangers for the next two weeks. Yeah, I just played like mad. Uh, Then I went away to school when I was 13 to a, a school in New England called Kent. Kent School for Boys. What was it like to go from <laughs> to, to go from the Mesa to East Coast boarding school? I can't imagine you felt like an insider when you got there. No, um, I basically faked my way with a great deal of terror through my five years at Kent. I would work my rear end off to be like a C plus B minus student. I was always slightly over my head. What saved me uh, was basketball uh, and my basketball coach. And it wasn't that I had a huge amount of talent for the game, but I loved it passionately. And that became kind of my uh, centering uh, at Kent School. I read somewhere you describing yourself at that time as six foot and 120. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that was at 13. It didn't get much better, except I got taller. Uh, when I first got to Kent School, it was based on the English school system. And there was, you know, kind of a pecking order. And it was uh, kind of the Wild West. Anyone older than you in the, uh, in a, you know, an upper form, as instead of classmen, they were called forms, could pretty much, you know, not smack you around, but everything uh, right up to that. And it was 
quite terrifying. Yeah, but I, I didn't get picked on that much because I was 6'2 and 120. And I think people were afraid to like hit me <laughs> that I might shatter. <laughs> Thank and you. Then, you know, I'm, fa- I'm familiar, Ted. That was, my, that was my adolescence as well. It wasn't at boarding school. It was in the hood, but it was a very similar situation. <laughs> 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 I was an oddity, you know, and if you're t- a head taller than a lot of people are, which I was at that early age, you kind of, your gaze is a little bit over their heads anyway. So you definitely look like a dreamer off, you know, in some world that no one's quite sure where you are, even though you're just, you know, if you listen to the chatter in my head, it would sound like, you know, goofy, you know, it's funny to me that you described yourself as faking your way through boarding school and then in the next breath described how hard you worked to be a passing student. And like, look, I don't mean to be your therapist here, Ted, but um, uh, that kind of hard work is literally the opposite of faking it. <laughs> yeah. I had an English teacher, very acerbic, Mr. Alborn, who... Um, when passing out the advanced placement exam results, was stunned to find that I had done well. Said his phrase was, for someone who has the least amount of native intelligence, <laughs> you did rather well. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Uh, and here's what I think it is. I knew that my some part of me knew my life was not going to be about, uh, you know, an academic, a, a lawyer, uh, that kind of brain. Someplace I just knew that wasn't going to be. So when you took, when I took tests, it was almost fun. It was like a game or a, a pattern or I wonder, you know, it had that kind of thing uh, going on when I took tests. And so I think I, well, I know I tested way above my head uh, because when I went, this is all going to sound contradictory, but I, I got into Stanford because I was interesting geographically. I came from a, you know, almost living on the Hopi reservation, almost basically, you know, Flagstaff. Uh, I went to a prep school, a really good prep school back East. So this is an interesting person. Let's, let's take him in. But I sat in my first advanced placement English at Stanford class. And I remember sitting there the first day going, not only do I not know what the teacher is saying right now, I don't even understand the question the student next to me asked the teacher. <laughs> so I literally bailed on classes at Stanford. I, um, I'd wake up at 11 o'clock in the morning. I'd uh, turn on some good music. We had a tree stump that we had found that we brought into uh, our bedroom as kind of like a coffee table thing. I'd get up on the tree stump and kind of amuse myself and dance like a go-go boy for a while. Uh, Then I'd turn uh, my first TV. I grew up without television. My first TV was freshman at Stanford. And my first thing that I turned on was a black and white rerun of the Dick Van Dyke show. I'd watch that from 11 to 11.30, and then I would mosey off on my bicycle to the center of the campus and see if I had any classes left that I might want to go. You know, it was just, thank God I found acting. My AP English teacher wrote on one of my papers, and I ended up having a series of very serious meetings at school with my parents about it. 
I fear you may never take anything in life seriously. Oh, oh, wow. That's kind of, that's to the core. That's a belly punch. Yeah, well, joke's on him. I'm a comedian now. Ha ha ha. I had one of, that's so funny because I had, uh, at the museum, there's this wise, wonderful man, uh, Parker Hamilton. He was uh, an amazing photographer, and he had done things in his life. And, you know, back east as a professor and then came to the museum uh, to work as the photographer. And he was like, truly like Yoda or something. He was so wise. And he pulled me aside once when I maybe was like uh, 16, 17, and said, Ted, the world does not need another Bob Hope. You need to get serious. <laughs> and I was like, well, shoot. Um, so I pretend to be serious every once in a while. <laughs> so you ended up transferring colleges. Did you transfer to become an actor? Yes. I mean, it sounds like a cliche story, but I gathered the nerve at Stanford to my sophomore year to ask this young lady out who was working in the cafeteria. And she finally said yes. And we went out for a cup of coffee at the student union. And then five minutes in, she said, oh, shoot, I forgot. I have an audition. And I went, oh, can I come with you? And she went, oh, I guess so. And so I went with her to the audition. for uh, It was for the play, a Bertolt Brecht play called Mom East Man. And uh, to stay in the room, you, I had to audition. And I, so I made something up. I stood up and just literally made something up. And people laughed. And I thought, well, that's cool. And I got the smallest part you could get, you know, like the fourth rifle carrier from the left. But I was hooked. I started taking classes. I moved, drove my station wagon to the back of the theater and just lived in, lived in it, literally in a mattress. Uh, I was light. The light bulb went off. I was just fascinated. And people said, if you're serious, you should go back east. And so um, last minute audition for Carnegie Mellon University. And off I went to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, of course, being the heart of show business. You know, <laughs> I know. We, we would often sit there going, why didn't we go to Juilliard? Why, why aren't we, you know, at the New York University? No uh, shade to Carnegie Mellon, one of oh, America's greatest universities. I want to be no, clear. No, no, no. It, it is one of the, and still is one of the best theater schools in, in the world. It, it truly is. And we had some of the most astounding teachers. And it was the best thing in the world. But all of us champing at the bit to be in the business thought, oh dear, now we have to go to New York and you know figure that all out. But uh, no, I loved Carnegie. I could not get enough of it. It was the only acting I knew. So I threw myself into it wholeheartedly. And um, I still love acting as much as I did when the light bulb went off at, you know, at Carnegie. There's this great scene in the first episode of Mr. Mayor where your character is talking to his daughter, I think. And the question of whether you're handsome comes up and uh, <laughs> your character says, I am handsome. And it's such a, it's such a sweet, beautiful moment. I mean, I think it's a tribute to your gifts as a performer that you're able to be sweet while saying, I am handsome. 
But I wonder if, like, I was watching uh, some clips of you very early in your career, and just kind of wondering what it would like, to, what it would be like to be that handsome. And I wonder if you were aware that you were very handsome. I, I'm not asking you to be you indiscreet here, but uh, no, or embarrass no, yourself. I, but I have to tell you, I, I can tell you the progression because no, I was. First off, I, I, you know, I wasn't in a normal high school. I, I went to an all-boys school. I lived three miles out of town. You know, when I hit puberty, I was in the middle of nowhere. I was just, I never dated. I think of, you know, if I kissed somebody, we were engaged. I was that person. So handsome was not, and oh, the, yeah, the other thing, until I went to Stanford, it looked kind of like I had swallowed a hand grenade. My teeth were going in every direction, you know, chipped, one coming out, you know, just horrible. It was like a girl would look at me, an attractive girl would look at me, I'd look at her, she'd smile, I'd smile, and she'd go, ooh, you know, I was just not in the game, and I didn't go to bars, I didn't do any of that. So, no, to answer your question, I was painfully shy and unaware that I had any, uh, you know, even the visage of prowess until cheers. And then I discovered that they had hired a lot of uh, women to stand around the bar as extras and actresses, beautiful actresses to, to say, oh my God, you're so sexy, Sam, Sam Malone. And so you, uh, you started to get the mantle of your character. And for the first time in my life, instead of going, oh, no, I'm not, you, you have no idea who I am, I kept my mouth shut and slowly decided, okay, I can, <laughs> I can do this. But basically, no, I am the opposite of Sam Malone. I am, uh... It reminded me that scene, the, the famous scene from later on in the run of Cheers where Carla is having a personal confidence crisis. And of course she admires Sam so much and you're, and Sam finally just like uh, pulls off his hairpiece to show her that he's not perfect. <laughs> and the thing that I love about that scene, I mean, it's a wonderful moment in general for the character and so forth, but the, the choice that I love the most about that scene is you can see that as he is telling her that, he is also imperfect. You are petting the hairpiece <laughs> like it was a like it was a beloved gerbil or something. <laughs> oh man, that when you know this, but when you're uh, around comedy writers as an actor, beware of what you reveal. <laughs> Because it is fodder for the comedic writer who's, uh, you know, anyway, I had a, yeah, that was a tough period. And I think, I think the year before the uh, Cheers quit, I finally decided, well, to hell with it. My ball spot is behind me. When I look in the mirror, I look great. So to hell with the rest of you. I want to play a clip from a commercial that you did before Cheers and I feel like all it really needs is set up is that you're like walking into what looks like a, a fancy hotel or possibly a fancy a, apartment plaza. building. Oh, it's the plaza. There you go. Tom, what are you doing here? Meetings. You are more beautiful than ever. You still say the right thing. And you're still wearing arrows. One of them. 
nice things you did for me. When are you leaving? Tomorrow. What are you doing here? I think I'm missing a plane. Aramis. The impact never fades. <laughs> That's funny. You're dreamy. You're dreamy, Ted. Dreamy. You want to hear a funny Aramis story? Of course, yes. The head of the advertising agent agency that did that, who was a, you know, one of the great men in advertising, and I'm blanking on his name, but we were in a room getting ready, all of us, makeup and hair and all that, and to go shoot that scene. And I uh, picked up the Aramis bottle, splashed some on my hand, and started to put it my, on my face. And he went, no, 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 not on your skin. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Even more still to come with Ted Danson. We'll talk about what it was like meeting his wife, Mary Steenburgen, his take on spirituality, and how he wants to die. So, you know, buckle up. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, NerdWallet, a personal finance website and app that helps people make smarter money moves. Have new money goals this year? Whether you want to use credit card points to plan a family vacation abroad once it's safe or take advantage of low mortgage rates to refinance and save for your child's education, NerdWallet is the best place to shop financial products to help make your 2021 money goals happen. Discover and compare the smartest credit cards, mortgage lenders, and more at nerdwallet.com. If you're into science, but you need a break from the coronavirus, NPR Shortwave has your back. Whether we're talking about how scientists measure Mount Everest or spiders that hang out underwater, we promise you'll have fun and learn something. Subscribe to Shortwave, the daily science podcast from NPR. Hey there, beautiful people. Did you hear that good, good news? Something about the baby Jesus? Mm, He's coming back. Or do you mean the fact that <laughs> Apple Podcasts has named Fanti one of the best shows of 2020? I mean, we already knew that we was hot stuff, but a little external validation never hurts, okay? Hosted by me, writer and journalist Jared Hill. And me, the ebony enchantress myself, <laughs> Travel Anderson. Fanti is your home for complex conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the people, places, and things. We're huge fans of, but got some anti-feelings toward. You name it, we fan-tie you. Nobody's off limits. Check us out every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your Slayworthy audio. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Ted Danson. He's the star of Cheers, Damages, Bored to Death, so many great television shows. He has made more episodes of television than all but, I think it's one person. These days, he's playing the title role on NBC's Mr. Mayor. The brand new show is streaming now. Let's get back into our conversation. There was a giant like oral history of Cheers that came out a a few years ago. And one of the things that I read that I, I didn't know was that Sam Malone, the character, was originally written to have been a, a football player. And and originally they Yeah, tight end. Yeah, and they, and they originally had a you know a football player in mind to play the role and and that you kind of came in late in the process and, and they realized that your that let's say your your physical delicacy 
might not yeah <laughs> might not read my 6 to 120 yeah. <laughs> might not read as a as a football player i think like one of the uh, charleses or something said like i don't know he had kind of a dancer's body <laughs> and they just came up with the one sport they could think of where someone with a dancer's body could succeed yeah which was the, the- but they were smart enough to make him uh, a relief pitcher so there's a crazy arrogant thing about relief pitchers because you only come in when you know when it's a disaster and you're here to save the day and i, I that's kind of smart that the at least the dancer body guy had a uh, had a great attitude to play you know i read this piece from i think it was the washington post from the maybe the second or third season of cheers and one of the things that I read you say about Sam that I really liked was that initially, like at the beginning of the run, and I don't even know if this is actually true because it's Cheers is so fully formed from the beginning um, relative to most sitcoms, but the, the beginning of the run, you kind of played him as being dumb. And then you, maybe you realized that he was choosing to be that in the world that maybe he valued being plain and just didn't want to be fancy. I thought that was such a significant distinction for that character. I, I, it took me about a year of um, doing Sam Malone the first season before I think I began to get it. It doesn't mean that the show wasn't great and all of that, but as far I, I didn't know how to play arrogant. Uh, I hadn't done that. I hadn't done boy-girl in my life, you know, arrogant and bar guy and all of that. So it took me a while to kind of, I think, living through the first season, having people write about it, have people like it or not like it or whatever, kind of gave me the shell I needed to go, oh, well, screw it. You know, here I am. But, you know, for better or worse, I'm going to have fun. And that attitude kind of helped me learn how to play it. But in the beginning, I was, I don't know that I was correct in that assumption that he, Sam, was actually smarter than he was letting on. And I think as I went, well, you know what? I think he is smart, but then he had this massive blind spot called women, (laughs) you know, uh, and addiction to, to women and sex and all of that. So, so, yeah, I think he was smart, except for the <laughs> one glaring. Uh, it's much more fun to play the dumb joke. It really is. Um, it's the best joke in town. And I think that holds true in drama as well. It's like uh, when I did Damages, there was, I mean, the writing was so good and the, all the players were great, but it was funny to have somebody who was so arrogantly, you know, I'm a self-made man. I can take on the world. I can do anything and get away with anything I want and just feel so confident in that. While the audience in the real world is Glenn Close is about to clean my clock. You know, that's funny to not know how wrong you are in life when everyone else does. It's funny because when you say that thing that you learned from playing Sam Malone that that you just described, that feeling of take me as I am for good and for bad, that could be dumb heedlessness. 
but it also, I mean, it, you have often played characters whose arrogance involves them having accepted what's wrong with them, right? <laughs> like yeah. on The Good Place, you are a demon. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, like I'm thinking of, I think probably my favorite role from your long and amazing career of your many, many wonderful roles is probably on Bored to Death, where you yeah. played this magazine editor who sort of swans through his glorious magazine editors, you know, last of the great magazine editors, you know, lifestyle, his sort of Graydon Carter lifestyle, and just seems to have beautifully accepted what a disaster area he is. <laughs> and it was just like, well, I'm going to wear this beautiful robe and see how it goes. Yes, I think what saved him was his the joy of being around younger people of don't leave me out, mm -hmm. you know, his fear of being left out and wanting to play and still wanting to be, you know, part of that youthful energy. I'm going to play a, a scene from Bored to Death. So Jonathan was the protagonist of the show played by Jason Schwartzman, and he was a a uh, magazine writer turned private detective of a sort. And so in this scene, uh, your character, George, has met Jonathan's best friend, Ray, who's played by Zach Galifianakis, and they're waiting outside of a motel uh, where Jonathan is doing some <laughs> investigating and they decide to smoke some pot and they, you know, start to get to know each other. I have a daughter. Oh, yeah? You guys close? She lives in Seattle. We love each other, but we're... We don't really know each other. Oh my God. I have completely failed at the most important thing in life. I'm gonna call her right now and tell her I love her. No, 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 no. You don't you don't wanna hide out with your daughter. I'm not that high, I really. I think you are. I'll use the voice changer. That way she won't be able to tell I'm stoned. No, no, yes. <laughs> hey, uh, honey, I just called to tell you that I love you. This is your father. I'm a robot. That's stone thinking. You're going to scare the <laughs> out of her. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing more fun than to play stone. <laughs> I mean, I think what I love about your character on that show is... That, you know, I look, you have the skills to play a, a likable sitcom protagonist f forever. Like, you, you demonstrated by being the likable protagonist of the greatest sitcom of all time, you know, at least if you discount being pioneering. You know, maybe you could make an argument for I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners for inventing sitcoms. But otherwise, for me, it's Cheers. And, you know, you, you played on... You, you start in good sitcoms for 10 years after that. You know what I mean? Um, that took advantage of, of what a great screen presence you are. And I think bored to death sort of like it would be easy for you to play against type, right? It, that's often a move that people who are identified with a television persona do. But what I think bored to death does is that it identifies these odd parts of your screen persona that, and explores them, 
Like that quality of having your head a foot above everyone else is one of your great gifts as a performer. And it's like what makes Sam palatable, even though he's maybe sometimes a little bit of a monster. But it's like all that George does is just, as I said, like glaze past life in this amazing way, except when he realizes he might get left out of something. Yes. Uh, That's interesting. I don't know if I want to add anything. I, I like that. You've been married a long time. And you met you met your wife in the in the early nineties in like nineteen ninety three. Where were you at in your life outside of your career when you met her? Hot mess. Yeah, I was publicly a hot mess, and um, I was separated and getting a divorce. And uh, but I I uh, was working very hard on myself. I, uh, I had a good wake up call. And so I, you know, I would, I would drive to Long Beach two or three times a week to see my mentor, like therapist guy. And, uh, who's a, been a friend for life now. Um, so I took it seriously. Um, and, uh, kind of grew up emotionally. And, uh, I, if I hadn't done that, I don't think life would have put Mary and me together or even in the same room. That's kind of how I look at it. So when we found each other, um, we both got cast in the same movie playing husband and wife and uh, throughout the movie or halfway through the movie, you know, fell in love and uh, stayed together forever. Um, But we had entered that movie going separately saying to ourselves, well, clearly I'm not capable of having a relationship. Uh, Mary was going through that same feeling. And um, so we kind of went, well, all right, we can be friends kind of thing. Um, Took a canoe ride up uh, the Mendocino River and uh, came back down a four-hour canoe ride. And uh, I think we're kind of, without saying anything or very much, we're kind of both kind of madly in love with each other. How do you think being with her changed the other pieces of your life, the the parts that were outside of relationships? Well, I, you know, I think she insists that I am the best version of myself. And she does it through, you know, love and laughter and <laughs> mocking my, you know, insanity sometimes. But, you know, I am always trying to be my best self around her, which, you know, affects every part of my life. Um, I am endlessly fascinated. I feel like if relationships are uh, these wonderful fist fights, I'm, I'm punching a little bit above my weight kind of thing. I, you know, she is such an amazing partner that I'm always trying to live up to where I see her playing in life. And I think she does the same with me on that canoe ride in Mendocino. Um, we kept going up river and she'd keep wanting to see what was around the next bend. She was always, let's go one more. Let's, oh, look at that. And I think that's been a truism in our life. Uh, She's always wanting to go around the next bend and see what life has in store for us. And I think I might've been more sedentary or no, no, you know, this is good. This is good. Let's, let's maintain. So, 
you know, most of the excitement in my life is generated by keeping up with uh, Mary. And I trust that now to the point where even when I grumble, I know that her next plan <laughs> is going to be exciting. I mean, it's, it's lame. She says, you know what I think in a conversation? And I get excited before she starts talking. I go, oh, what? I can't wait to hear. She's such a great actor. Do you think your relationship with her has changed your art making? Uh, one facet of it does. She is a great actor. And I, uh, when, she, when she soars as an actor, it's like on another planet almost. Um, so much admiration of her, just her, her as an actor. But one of the things she does in life is she always, uh, that I admire, is she always leaps off tall buildings. She's always looking for another, you know, exciting, scary always has to be scary thing to do. You know, David Mamet's uh, Boston marriage, which is one of the hardest women's parts ever. And she took Zoe's extraordinary playlist, which she's doing on NBC for the same reason. She wanted, she's not a singer, she's not a dancer, and she's now singing and dancing. She, uh, she's a songwriter now for the last 12, 15 years. She's, I mean, the real deal songwriter. Critics' Choice Award uh, last year for best song in a film. And that was like, wait, what? You're going to stop, not stop, but besides being an actor, you're going to go off and become a songwriter and we're going to have, you know, move to Nashville for a while and we're going to have this whole new music side to our life. What are you doing? And thank God, because it's brought such joy to my life, all of the our friends in Nashville and the songwriters and creative folks. And she really reintroduced music into my life. Uh, yeah. What's a time that she took you on a, a jump off a tall building that you were scared about? Well, all, all of those things I just mentioned, but you mean pushing me off the building? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get the impression, Ted, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't seem like a natural yeah. building jumper offer. No, I'm not. I think, you know, I had Woody Harrelson once asked me, sitting outside, probably, perhaps high, perhaps not, turned to me, and I don't have an end to this story, but uh, this just rings in my ears all the time. He said, Teddy, what are you so afraid of? And I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't even know what we were talking about, but um, I definitely, I find all of this living stuff slightly fearful. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Ted, you're in your 70s. If you find the living stuff fearful, how do you feel about dying stuff? Well, I want the whole Monty. I would love to be able to be conscious right up until I'm not. I would love to be, I would love to know every ounce of this human experience. Part of what I'm saying is, you know, I'll listen back to this podcast and go, Ted, listen to yourself. That's what you said. Uh, I'm sure I'll be fearful. I'm sure I'll be all these things, but I want it all. I really want to uh, to experience what it is to be human as much as possible. So I'm all right with, I'm, I mean, I'm all right in this moment about that moment coming. I'll see how it, I'll get back to you <laughs> when I'm really going through it. Do you believe in God? Uh, yes, I, I would be hard pressed to describe to you, 
you know, in a sentence or two what that means. Um, you know, but belief, you know, faith is this, I don't know. I remember sitting there watching my mother die. I would take the night shift. Uh, my sister would sleep and then she'd be the person around my mother when, uh, during the day. And I remember every, all my studying, all my, you know, therapy or studying different religions or Zen or my whatever, every philosophical thought I've had in life went flying out the window. And I realized I don't know. She may know in these last moments, but I don't know. And what happened for me was that it became very simple. It became, Ted, do the right thing in this moment. And that's become my kind of guiding philosophy. I fail miserably, but I keep trying to do that. Try to be a little bit better tomorrow, you know. Here's what I hope. There's got, I'm going to be really disappointed if there's not some version of a campfire afterwards where we can all sit around giggling at ourselves and all of our silliness and can you believe we did that or thought that. And I just would, you got to have some sort of a playback family video, something to enjoy our inanities, you know, our, hum our human foibles or something. Ted, I'm so grateful that you took all this time to be on Bullseye. It was, so I admired your work for so long and it was so nice to get to talk to you. Jesse, you too. I, um, I really appreciate the conversation. Maybe next time we'll get a chance to talk about whether you ever made your peace with Gary's Old Town Tavern. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ted Danson, can't beat that. Mr. Mayor, his new show is on NBC. You can catch new episodes of the show Thursday nights at 8, 7 central and on a handful of streaming platforms, including Hulu and Peacock. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here in Northeast LA, where I live, I put together an entire eight-foot trampoline by myself and then realized that the net that goes around it, the safety net, was slightly crooked and that meant that I would have to take the entire thing apart and put it back together again. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien and Kristen Bennett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for sharing it with us. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews on all of those platforms. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 